Welcome to the Lean Health Tech Podcast, where industry professionals discuss trends and topics where efficiency, healthcare, and technology meet. My name is Taryn Shipley, and I'm your host. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Graham Walker. Dr. Walker is an emergency medicine physician at Kaiser Permanente and the Assistant Physician-in-Chief for Technology and Innovation at the Permanente Medical Group. He's the creator and founder of MDCalc, an online resource that provides clinical decision support tools and calculators to millions of healthcare professionals worldwide. He also recently co-authored the Physician's Charter for Responsible AI, which is a global declaration of professional values and responsibilities as medicine moves rapidly toward AI tools at the point of care. Today's topic is AI Unveiled, Separating Promise from Hype in Healthcare. The release of ChatGPT in November 2022 democratized the use of large language models so everyday people could experience the capabilities of AI firsthand. That triggering event made the potential for AI in all sectors, including healthcare, explode. The global AI and healthcare market size is projected to grow from 14.6 billion US dollars in 2023 to 102.7 billion dollars by 2028. Dr. Walker, what aspects of AI and healthcare are currently overhyped and why does the hype exist? Thanks so much for having me, Taryn. I I loved your title because uh yeah, there's so much promise and there is so much hype at the same time. I feel like I uh, I can very easily keep those two concepts very clear in my mind and they're not conflicting, but I'm sure a lot of people think they're you can't like view promise and hype uh, at the, at the same time. I think the the hype is really focused on the idea that this AI stuff will just be kind of plug and play, like it'll just start working and there will be no speed bumps, problems, issues that come up because these tools are perfect. I think it's a it's a general sense of healthcare is so imperfect and these tools are so really incredible that clearly immediately these tools will will kind of take over or will immediately fix a lot of the problems. That's just not going to happen. Healthcare moves slowly, um, I think for for good and for bad reasons, but um, healthcare is is not changing overnight. And because we want to make sure that we do this AI stuff safely and and ethically and morally, and, and obviously, most importantly, not harm any patients in the process. That's always going to be fundamentally key to um, working with any any healthcare organization. That's a great explanation. And I use an analogy when other people ask about AI. Why isn't it going faster? It seems like overnight there were all these promises made. I like to give the example of an electronic health record. The High Tech Act of 2009 was over 10 years ago now, and there are still organizations yeah. and clinics that don't have electronic EHRs. So I try to equate it to that. Yes, EHRs, it seemed like a big bang and it's moving so quickly. But if you look back, we're still improving the EHR. So I think, yeah, you're right. Like AI, it's not going to be plug and play. There are so many nuances, so many pieces of configuration and ongoing things to consider, just like the electronic health record. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a, it's a good analogy because, you know, if we were designing or building or programming EHRs like today with today's technology, uh, we would probably build our EHRs somewhat differently. I think similarly, if I was building a hospital today or or starting my own, yeah, I'm an ER doctor, so opening my own ER today, I probably would bake some AI tools into it to some degree, right? 
but there's all of this, you know, legacy Croft, however you want to call it, from the past many, many decades of medical practice and care that certainly shape and filter what we do and how much we're able to change and how quickly, because we've built systems and, and workflows that have worked pretty well for a long time and doing a pretty decent job for many patients. Obviously, it could be a lot better, but um, you know, it's really hard to change human behavior, especially, I think, in healthcare. That technology debt is very important and relevant as we, like you said, if we were to build it today, we probably would have built it very differently. But yeah, because yeah. it exists as X, now we have to build upon X and keep building upon X, even though it might not be the optimal way. But do you start from scratch? Because that's difficult too. I talk a lot about regulations because uh, in LinkedIn and stuff, because they, they really filter, I think, what we are able or not able to do. Sometimes I would love to um, take regulation X and I would love to have it modified so that we could do Y much faster or easier or better. But it's this always this back and forth, like, well, do we, it's like the Donald Rumsfeld quote, do we go to the, go to war with the army that we have or the one that we want or something like that? I, I would love to have some changed regulations to make it easier to do AI and, and improve EHRs, but um, we don't, we can't just wait around for, for those regulations to change. I love that attitude. A lot of people feel like their you know, healthcare is almost in shackles due to the regulations and the regulatory measures, and they're just doing what the government is telling them to do because they have to. And I mean, you have to play the game, right, for reimbursement yeah. purposes, but you can track additional measures. It, it requires extra work that's not directly resulting in revenue, but hopefully in the long run, it is the optimal move, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what are some examples of how AI in healthcare has genuinely impacted workflows or patient care? I think the tool that the, the tools that have been the most successful thus far have really been in the ambient documentation space because uh, the, the thing they all have in common is a, it's really easy to, well, it's become very easy to take the speech and convert it into text and then take that and run it through a large language model to come up with a, a summarized note. The other piece I think, Taryn, that's, that's even more important is that these are all clinician facing, right? So these are not patient facing. And in some ways it, it kind of keeps the human in the loop where, you know, that this note is not going um, directly into the chart and being signed right when it's generated. Look at the note, you review it, you copy and paste it into the EHR in many in many cases, and then you sign it. If the paradigm was, oh, you just talk to the patient and whatever got said is turns into the note and it, the note just gets automatically signed when you end the conversation, no one would adopt that because everyone would be terrified it would be incorrect or have wrong information there or bad information or just be poorly organized. And so really the key is essentially that this this tool helps you document, but ultimately that the human is still in control and ultimately responsible for what, what they sign in the note too. Absolutely. Maintaining that learned intermediary of humans is essential, not only for clinician-based AI, but I think for, you know, as we see additional AI tools branch off for other care team members, even nurses, social workers, even the patient-facing stuff, the patients are still going to want to review things 
and not just have it 100% automated, maybe like 90% of the way is what we're striving yeah. for. Yeah. And, you know, we're, I mean, we're obviously focusing a ton on, on generative AI. I think the other area that will be huge and, and probably will honestly be even bigger than generative AI is, is kind of the machine learning, neural networks, deep learning space. The generative stuff is is here today and you can use it thanks to, to OpenAI and ChatGPT. And so that's gotten all the buzz but I actually think a lot of the machine learning tools will be more transformational in how we deliver and provide care and give predictions and prognosis and diagnosis. Uh, but those will take longer to adopt in medicine because, again, those are so impactful to patient care specifically. And we have some of those basic models. I'm thinking about in Epic today. I've personally built some where you build out the logic and the steps if x then y or if z yeah. then q but with machine learning models the thing that fascinates me the most is they might be teaching us something if they're detecting certain um, data points in the patient's chart that might be an indicator of a later chronic disease that we as humans haven't even identified as a potential cause or impacting factor so i think yeah, the learning would... goes both ways yeah I, I was talking to an informaticist uh two days ago. And, um, you know, he was saying, what if these, these tools actually just skip diagnosis entirely, right? These tools are going to know the, the kind of presenting symptoms, the patient's labs, the vitals, whatever. And then they may be, they'll also know the outcome, right? So you have to wonder, will these tools, I mean, humans will still care about diagnoses, but will these tools just jump right to the outcome and say, well, I don't, you know, I don't really care if this patient has a pulmonary embolism or not, but in 3 million patient encounters that I've looked at in that that are similar to the patient in front of you, uh, these patients tend to do better with, uh, with anticoagulation. You know, maybe they do or don't have a pulmonary embolism. Maybe they, you know, maybe they have um, just a kind of a procoagulant um, phenotype. It was an interesting concept. Will these tools even care about the diagnosis or will they just say, well, we know that this management algorithm will be more optimal or or the best for the patient. We recommend, uh, you know, getting a CT angiogram ad and admitting to the hospital or giving this antibiotic or that one or doing this test or that one with the machines not actually caring about what the what the diagnosis is in the middle. Wow. I've never thought of that concept before. That is pretty... Right? pretty cool, but also frightening. If what you described happens, will there be a point in medicine where we rely more heavily on machines and learning algorithms than we do human providers? It's it's a totally fascinating concept, also scary at the same time. It's like holding those two ideas in your head at the same time. I think the piece where, to me as a physician, it, it gets particularly concerning is just how will anybody know if the machine is right? You know, I mean, we talk a lot about explainability and transparency, and and I think that will be a critical piece, at least as a as a bridge toward these um these deeper learning models, so that I, the physician, can have have a little bit more trust and honestly just be able to like explain it to the patient, be able to say like, oh well, you know, yeah, we did right 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 now. It's like, oh, we did a CAT scan, and I bound a pulmonary embolism. I, here's where the blood clot is in your lungs. Therefore. I'm recommending this. You could imagine if you're just 
getting a, a tool that just says do a CT scan and admit them to the hospital, it's hard to, it's going to be hard to explain to a patient why. And is there any chance this could be, this thing could be wrong? Sure. But I won't be able to explain why it could be wrong or what my thinking is, which is, that's what kind of scares me is, you know, with these tests, no test is perfect. CT scans are certainly not perfect for pulmonary embolism as I'm sticking to that topic either. And so you have to know when to believe a test and when to doubt a test uh, and when to, you know, accept a test, false positives, false negatives, all, all of that. Yeah, the black box logic, not only is it concerning yeah. from a provider and a patient perspective, what do you charge the payers? I mean, you still need a diagnosis yeah. because that whole insurance piece of healthcare, I don't think is going away anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, agreed. What are the ethical implications of AI in healthcare, especially regarding data privacy and things like patient consent? There are numerous. It's good that we focus on data privacy and consent because you know you, we could do a whole we could do a whole podcast itself just on on ethics of AI and healthcare. I think on on the data privacy side, these tools, not just generative AI, but all of these tools, really require just massive amounts of data, which luckily healthcare has. But you know we need to make sure that the data is is both accurate and and safe and protected. You've probably seen there's there's numerous studies that even just, just looking at chest x-rays and some some of these tools are predicting the patient's race just based on a, a chest x-ray tool. Race itself it could be could be its own topic um, as well as you know since medicine is certainly trying to move away from race being included in any of these prediction scores as well. The data privacy piece is going to be really interesting talked about regulations. I think HIPAA could absolutely use some improvements that would actually make things, make data even safer and also have a, a, a better outcome of making it easier to build and develop these AI tools. Under consent, I, I feel really kind of mixed about where to draw the line about informed consent. Uh, and I think this is going to change over time as people get more and more comfortable with AI tools or more leery and more concerned about AI tools as part of their daily lives. I like to remind people that AI is already part of their lives. If they're anywhere on social media or they've ever bought anything on Amazon, AI models are showing them what products are being displayed in their feed, um, what photos are being shown and which ones aren't. You know, Netflix is recommending things using AI models. So that stuff already exists. I think on the patient consent side, right now with some with some prediction scores, I generally think uh, physicians don't kind of ask for patient's consent or inform patients, hey, I'm using this risk model to determine if I should admit you to the hospital or order this test um, because they're widely accepted as kind of the standard of care, the, the best the best um, the best way to practice medicine. But will that change with AI? You know, should I inform, if you're my patient, should I inform you, hey, I'm using this tool um, and it has recommended that I start you on this blood thinner. Um, should I inform you that I'm using the tool? I think if it doesn't, if the tool can't explain why it's recommending it, I think I probably should. I, the explainability piece to me as a, as a human 
the lowly human seems really important. If the thing can can say, well, we, uh, you know, we ran your all your blood tests and all this other stuff through thirty thousand patients, and um, and we noticed that this group of patients tends to form blood clots, um, therefore we recommend an anticoagulant. That feels a little bit safer than, hey, I just clicked a button and then all it did on the other end was say, prescribe this blood thinner. When it's that black of a box, I feel like I do need to let the patient know, hey, I, as your doctor, as the pres as the potential prescriber of this medicine, I don't actually know why it's telling me to do this. And that seems very counterintuitive to medical practice. Every doctor wants to, or, or really right now, needs to have a reason to prescribe a medicine that makes logical, rational, reasonable sense. So the ideal output of an AI model that is truly, I guess, trustworthy and applicable in a clinical mm. manner would be one that outputs not only the recommendation, whether it be the diagnosis or the treatment, but also the rationale that it used and the rationale behind recommending said diagnosis or treatment. So I recommend a blood thinner based on these 10 data points that I found in the patient's chart when I compared it across however many records in a similar fashion. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think not just not just clinicians, but I think patients are going to demand that. If it's easier to to um it's easier to think about if you think about the extremes about like taking somebody to surgery and cutting them open or putting them on chemo or something, right? When you think of these things that we certainly associate with higher risk kind of treatment. I can't imagine a patient um, agreeing to surgery or a surgeon agreeing to surgery without some clear reasoning why they should risk putting somebody under and cutting them open and taking out their appendix, gallbladder, whatever, right? Some of these treatments have significant risks. Similarly, I can't imagine a, a patient agreeing to chemo and all the risks that come with chemo unless it's like clear that you have cancer. So I, I think when you think about those more extreme cases, I can't imagine as a, as a doctor or as a patient accepting some machine just saying, yeah, you should cut out this guy's appendix. Well, why? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It also brings me to the idea that the electronic health record is such an imperfect reflection of our health history. It's only as good as the data that we input. So me as a patient, I will undoubtedly forget some of my symptoms or some of my history. The provider might only get a, the piece of what I tell them and forget a few additional pieces on top of that. So by the time that the machine learning actually occurs, it's not an exact representation of us as an individual. So yeah. seeing that output of here are the factors that I used to create this recommendation gives humans an opportunity to say, wait a minute, that was a misdocumentation or that doesn't apply to this patient. And if we're training these machines on electronic health records that aren't perfect, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? It's only as good as what we're documenting. So I think in the future, we'll see even more stress on the importance of thorough documentation. Yeah. And if you, if you want to go even a step further, right? Um, one of my I wouldn't say worries, but kind of curiosities or lingering questions. If all of medicine or a large portion of medicine just starts to use these um, ambient listening technologies for their documentation, 
will our notes get blander and therefore will the data, uh, will the, you know, models that we're basing these on get worse or lower quality because everybody's documenting the same way because they're just using a, a generative AI tool to do the documentation. You know, when I see somebody, a colleague's note or my own note that says appears younger than stated age or, um, you know, uh, cracking jokes during the abdominal exam, non-tender, whatever, right? Those little bits and pieces of information, to me, speak volumes about the patient, their health, maybe even what was in my differential diagnosis or why I decided to do certain things and why I decided not to do others. If those get removed because we're just taking a history by listening to each other and then I don't actually go in and add those little details or those little flourishes. I think the notes get more vague and they they lose some meaning. I, I don't know if we have to have that meaning. That's, you know, it's a hypothesis. I don't know. But um, that's one thing I think about sometimes. Yeah, the EHR almost becomes some sort of an echo chamber because yeah, we had right. all this input once and now it's the same knowledge that's bouncing around in there without much new input if we rely heavily on you know, ambient documentation, like you mentioned. Yeah. So what are some of the primary challenges in translating AI's theoretical potential into practical healthcare solutions? Oh man, it's it's like we talked about at the beginning of the interview, it's the workflows. The big pieces are on the backend healthcare org side. It's the workflows and, and getting these things to fit in the right place of the workflow. Um, since a lot of tools are inside the EHR and and not all the EHRs are super excited to uh, be opening their wall gardens to AI players and, and startups and stuff like that. And then on the the kind of more clinical or, or patient facing side, to me, it's really about the the safety of these tools, having frameworks or ways to validate, evaluate, confirm, test these tools and make sure that they are at a level of acceptability for humanity, <laughs> for society. If we wanted to, we could just launch a custom version of ChatGPT today with any health system. Anybody could do that. The technology is not difficult, might be expensive, but they, they, could, they could do it today. But nobody has because we're not really sure that this these things are going to be acceptable in the range of the ways that the diversity of, of the human experience and the diversity of how uh, how patients present and describe their symptoms. And, you know, there, there are certainly patients where they can give very specific, clear information. I've had this for three days. It started, you know, when I, after I ate Chinese food, I do have a fever. It was one-on-one, you know, very specific information. And then there are a lot of patients that uh, are not nearly as specific or may describe things in different ways. And we just don't know if these tools are going to be able to safely give the right recommendations to a patient who maybe is more vague or say speaks another language. Those are the, I think, the biggest challenges uh, into getting stuff practically rolled out in healthcare. There were two things you just mentioned that stood out to me. One of them was testing, and the other one was ensuring that it's operating at a high enough quality or a high enough standard to be acceptable to use the model on humans. Those remind me of two additional potential issues, which is 
data in the background, how are we going to have to, I mean, I'm a data person. I work with data in Epic on a yeah. daily basis. So in the background, if AI is generating all this additional data, how do we handle that additional massive load of data that is now getting dumped on us that requires a lot of agility from a data engineering perspective when it comes to new tables, new databases, how we integrate the AI data and decipher that it was AI generated versus the human generated data, because we'll want to keep that that clean division and differentiation there. But also, what about maintenance? Yeah, An AI model that might be appropriate today, let's say it has an 85% rate of accuracy, fast forward five, 10 years, and 85% accuracy is probably not going to be acceptable. So healthcare organizations deploying AI models today really need to come up with a strong maintenance plan where they're regularly auditing their AI models and potentially continuously training them. So the machine is learning from human feedback. If the AI model spits out the wrong answer, then the human can say, wait, no, this is the right answer. And the machine will pick up on that and adjust accordingly for future recommendations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we talked about that in um, in the physicians charter that we we wrote, just about the uh, you know these concepts of shift and drift, and uh, you know a tool that is accurate today may not be as accurate in a week or a month or a year. There was a great paper that I I think about a lot as well. I think it was out. I want to say it was out out of Sinai. Um, and Stat News talks about. It. I posted it on LinkedIn a while ago, and it was just like a a simulation where you had three AI models, and it actually suggested. And I totally think this will will work out in the real world. Suggested that these models will impact each other, and so say you release model A that we'll go back to blood clots that is really good at predicting blood clots. And so based on model A, well, now we've started to put more people on blood thinners in the hospital. We've we just decided that's going to make these things better. Well, say you've got model B that's looking at adverse bleeding in the hospital. Well, model B is now, you know, you put more people on blood thinners, more people are going to have life-threatening bleeding in their guts, in their brains, wherever, um, after surgeries. So now model B is probably going to be less accurate or is going to have to be retrained with this new standard of, oh, we've now put 10% of people in the hospital on blood thinners. So these models are also going to impact each other. The maintenance and the monitoring are, are going to be critical because you're, it's not going to be a set it and forget it world where you're like, oh, okay, great. We launched this model and now we can move on to the next one. No, we may need to have a team of people that are looking at these models weekly or monthly and saying, hey, are these still performing at acceptable levels? It's almost a form of model inception. <laughs> All yep, the models yep. impact each other totally. and it's yes. so many, so many confounding variables. Yeah, it's a little bit of like a healthcare butterfly effect. That's kind of a, you know, like oh, you change one little thing in one model or you know, oh, this this tool makes you start ordering more of this test. Well, then maybe that test is going to be more or less um, valid if the test is ordered in a, a separate model. Absolutely. Where is the majority of investment in healthcare AI going? And is that aligned with the most pressing healthcare needs? I don't know nearly as much about the investment piece from what I've seen in my sliver of exposure 
the ideas are all in the right place. The concepts are good. I think generally a lot of people have a good sense of what's broken or what's not working in healthcare. I don't think there's too many people that are way off base. The challenge is, uh, again, going to be like, how does this fit into a workflow if I do everything in my EHR and the EHR just doesn't integrate with this tool that, you know, could be transformationally helpful? You know, I think Epic was very wise to partner with Microsoft to have their open AI infrastructure because then they get to kind of say, oh, yeah, well, we, we're doing AI. Obviously, OpenAI is probably, you know, the leading generative AI company right now. But they probably have a little bit easier time because then they can argue, well, we don't need to be opening up to every single startup that wants to partner with us because we've we've already said, here's how we're going to do AI. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it is great for organizations who are panicking a little bit. I know CMIOs and CIOs everywhere, yeah. their initiative, their main goal for 2024, 2025 is how can we implement AI in the organization? And luckily, if they have Epic, it's a pretty easy uplift. Yeah. The devil is going to be in the details. The Epic implementation, from what I've seen, is very flexible, which is good. But that is going to mean that it's not, again, it's not plug and play. The CMIOs, the CIOs are going to have to do some work and some testing on their own to make sure that the open AI tools are working, again, at what they would consider an acceptable level for their for their health system. So we covered a lot in this podcast, but how can healthcare professionals in general just balance the excitement around AI with a realistic expectation of its capabilities? The easiest way is to, this may not be uh, super exciting for a lot of people, but the way that I have <laughs> gotten to this point is through really messing around and trying to build stuff myself and see what works and what doesn't. I watch a lot of YouTube videos on AI programming. Uh, a lot of it is in in Python. Pretty easy to, to pick up. And I would say even if you don't want to um, get deep and start writing a little bit of code yourself, if you just watch some of these YouTube videos, you do get a sense for what these tools are able to do and what they aren't able to do pretty well. Especially, I think a lot of physicians have a fear that AI is going to take their jobs. I'm not worried about that at all because I understand what the limitations are of these tools right now. I've found a lot of solace <laughs> about my job security by just kind of seeing what these tools are doing and watching some kind of influencer people who are demonstrating, highlighting what the latest and greatest are that these tools are doing. I'll give a quick example. There's a lot of uh, interest in generative AI video. Well, if you watch, you know, there's a bunch of people that will show you how to make these little generative AI videos. From watching them, you'll also recognize the videos are like five seconds long. You can imagine that you could make, uh, you know, some videos that are slightly longer than that, and you could edit and stitch some videos together to make a longer commercial or a, a you know, a, a TV episode even, but that would take a lot of time. But you at least get a sense for like, you can't make an entire movie today by just typing in a prompt. 
with some of the deep fake stuff about about voice deep fake voice creation that's an area that you should be more concerned because i've watched a bunch of these videos that you know can you can generate someone's voice from like 10 seconds of them freaking speaking um and then from a 10 second clip you can have obama or biden or trump or mark cuban whoever it is talking to you and you would have almost no idea that it's not it's not really them Thank you so much for sharing your insight around AI hype versus promise in healthcare. This concludes today's Lean Health Tech podcast. If you're a listener and would like to hear a certain topic covered in future episodes, please let me know by leaving a review or comment. Thanks for joining and be sure to check out the next episode.